0: say uh, welcome to you uh, today. My name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here, and in a moment, it'll be my privilege to spend about 30 minutes walking you through a passage in the Bible. I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. Before that, though, uh, there are a couple of people who we want to announce to you today as uh, your pastors who would like to become members, would like to join this church. So, here's a picture of them. Uh, This is Sharon and Blessy and Philip. They have uh, come to trust the risen King and uh, would love to identify with us in a particular way and live out their Christian life. So, would you seek them out the the next couple of weeks? Ask them circumstances around them coming to trust Jesus, get to know them a bit if you haven't yet, and uh, there'll be several more that we can introduce to you In uh, the next few weeks. So, God continues to build His church. It's a great picture of the fact that He is alive and well. Um, If you have kids up through fifth grade and you'd like to have them go to some age specific teaching, that's offered now. It's called Gospel Project. You can head out towards the back and somebody will help you get your kids to where they need to go. Of course, if you want them to stay, that's fine as well. We uh, on this Easter Sunday are going to look at a passage in the book of Mark. So, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there to Mark chapter 5. And if you don't, then underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find a blue Bible, and you can turn to the table of contents there toward the beginning and find uh, the book of Mark. And as I said, we'll be in chapter 5. Typically on uh, Easter Sunday, everyone comes with the expectation that uh, every song, every prayer, and certainly the sermon will be explicitly about uh, the resurrection. And while uh, that is surely the climactic moment in human history, I want to take you this morning backstage. I want to encourage you to consider some moments in Jesus' life before His death and resurrection. In particular. I'd love for you to consider just for the next 30 minutes, what lies behind what makes the resurrection so significant? Specifically today, we're going to consider Jesus' character and Jesus' power. And maybe I could put it this way, no doubt, even if you've never sat in a church before, you've probably heard that Christians believe that Jesus died and he rose again. But I want to ask you this morning, do you know what he's like? Do you know how he lived? Yes, you may have heard of three days out of his existence, a, a Friday when he died, a Saturday when he stayed dead, and a Sunday when he wasn't dead anymore. But, but do you know about the other 33 years of his life and what he's still like today? That's what I'd love for us to consider, because in understanding His character and His power better, then we'll understand why the resurrection matters so much. So if you would, look in that Bible with me at verse 21. It says this, When Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about Him, and He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell down at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. This is what we might rightly call a desperate dad. Dad. Jairus was a man of significant responsibility and authority. In fact, he would have been one of the most important people in his town. Almost certainly because of his position, he would not have been predisposed to trust Jesus, to believe in Him, to follow Him. He wouldn't have been one of Jesus' disciples, one of the people who believed everything He said. And yet, desperate times call for desperate measures. He had heard that Jesus could do some things that nobody else could do, some things that are hard to believe, like making people who are sick better. And so he thought, I'll do whatever it takes to see if this guy could help my daughter because nothing else is working. So distressed was this father that he thought, it can't hurt to try. If you're a dad, certainly you can empathize with that impulse. Now, notice there at the very end of what we read, a couple of little words. It says, and he went with him. Jesus was a man of tremendous compassion, and he's awfully good at responding to requests for help. He still is, And so, he went with that man, Jairus, in order to meet this girl and address the need. Let's read on. The second half of verse 24, it says, "'And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse.'" She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garment, I will be made well. Mark wrote this account in the the common language of the day. In many ways, it's like English is the business language of the world. Koine Greek was the common vernacular. And The word behind that English translation, made well, is the word sozo. Some of you have heard of the coffee shop, sozo. Sozo means saved, to be saved. It's the same word used earlier when when the father asked that uh, this child would be made well. There's a little clue here into what The Scriptures very often translate the word and talk about our salvation, being rescued out of sin. It's the same word used for being rescued out of illness. Jesus is about ultimately bringing about a complete healing of people, body, soul, and spirit. Verse 29, and immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she had healed of her disease. This woman is different than the man in some striking ways. We'll talk about those in a little while. But just at this juncture, consider the fact that she's a silent sufferer. Have you been around town and uh, been in what is available to you at almost every street corner in Tempe, namely Construction and found that as you're waiting there, and three lanes have gone to two, gone to one, and the line has gotten longer and longer and longer. That oftentimes, when an ambulance is coming, even with the lights blaring and the siren blasting, that they have to slow way, way down when they get in those construction zones. Sometimes, even come to a standstill. Do you ever wonder when that happens? What those moments mean? I mean, in a life-threatening kind of situation, minutes, even seconds, can be the difference between life and death. Jesus is headed to help someone who's near the point of death. And this woman who's had a problem for 12 years, I mean, couldn't she have waited? This woman interrupts, Jesus, on his journey, reaches out and touches him. Now, how will Jesus respond to that? Well, we'll think about that together in just a moment. But notice that without saying a word, somehow she pressed her way through the crowd, reached forward, grabbed likely the tassel on his cloak, and somehow felt herself better healed. She believed after a dozen years of failed attempts that merely touching something Jesus wore would make her sozo. She was right. In an instant, she felt that power surging through her body and she was healed. Friends, what do we see about Jesus here? Well, we see He's not only compassionate, He's also unbelievably powerful. He could do what no one else could do to help this woman. The woman quickly pulled her her arm back, forever changed, and slowly began sliding back into the crowd, hoping to be completely unnoticed. Now, things start to get really interesting in the rest of the next paragraph. Verse 30, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments?" Now, whenever Jesus asks a question in the Bible, know that that question is not for His benefit. He knows. He can read thoughts. He's got no trouble knowing who touched Him. And so, there was something that Jesus wanted to do in her life, and no doubt By implication in the lives of everybody else who watched this event. His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and in trembling, fell down before him, and told the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, What a precious term, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has sozoed you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Although he didn't see the woman, Jesus knew something had happened. And imagine how the story could have gone. Jesus could have... He had somewhere important to go. He could have just cracked a smile knew himself what had happened, and kept right on going. That's what the woman wanted, and can you blame her? But that wasn't enough. You see, Jesus wanted something more for her. She wanted a miracle. Jesus wanted a meeting. She wanted a fix to her problem. Jesus wanted a follower. Biblical scholar Dr. Don Carson said it this way, In the kingdom of God, miracles are not ends to themselves. You see, there's no indication that because this physical problem was resolved that somehow forever all her physical problems were gone. No, she got something else eventually and died. So, what good is the miracle then? Well, something else is at stake in the miracle. That led to a meeting. Discipleship is not simply a matter of getting one's needs met, but growing in the presence of Jesus, being known by Him, and following Him on His terms. That's what the miracles are about. That's why Jesus turned around and said, who touched my garments? Now, the disciples' annoyance is just fantastic, isn't it? I grew up in a family of uh, three brothers, and For some reason, my parents thought it wise every summer to take us on a -a two-and-a-half, three-week cross-country driving trip. And some of the most fantastic fights we ever had were in the back of that Suburban. One trip, it was particularly um, bloody, and so my mom had my dad stop at a Walmart. She went in and bought some masking tape, and she came back to the car and literally, I remember it like it was yesterday, took that tape and put boundaries in the back seat. And if you crossed into the uh, other region across the tape, then you were going to get it. You were losing your privileges. There was no touching allowed. Jesus uh, felt this woman touch Him, and the disciples are like, everybody's touching you. There's a crowd mashing itself on you, and you've stopped. This is like an ambulance headed to someone in cardiac arrest, and there's somebody on the side of the road who fell and hurt their arm, and they stop. Seems to make no sense to anybody at all except Jesus. Jesus is never in a hurry. His resources aren't limited, and He's not like the disciples. The disciples were, at this point, still coming to terms with, still learning the heart of Jesus. You see, because Jesus wasn't sinful, then He had the ability to be fully present wherever He was. He wasn't like us in that we're so often thinking way ahead or back behind or consumed with ourselves. No, we're, Jesus was able to be wherever He was and meet the needs of the people right in front of Him. And so He wanted to do something in this woman's life that was more important than the healing. He wanted to make sure that the healing had its intended effect of engaging relationship. Imagine how frustrated that father must have been The crowds were slowing Jesus down and now Jesus was stopped and turned to help this woman and to help this woman who had had a problem for a dozen years. Couldn't she wait a day? But that's not how Jesus thinks. Friends, Jesus is always listening. It may be that you have gone years, even decades, without talking to God. It may be that you've never talked to God. It may be that you've done things that would make you think you can't ever talk to God. God is always just a prayer away. Now, I can't dwell here long, but the fact that Jesus called this woman to publicly name herself, to say, it was me, would have been absolutely horrifying to her. And let me explain why, because it won't be readily obvious unless you know your Scriptures inside and out. They're in the Old Testament, so that part of the Bible written before Jesus came, it's the first two-thirds of your Bible. It starts in Genesis, ends in Malachi. These are all books written prior to Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth in the Old Testament were laws about uh, worship, laws about society. And church and state were, were, were wed together in the way we would think of it today. And one of the laws that was in place, which is now fulfilled in Christ and no longer applies, is related to what had to be true about you to be present in what we would call church and gathered worship. One of those things was that you couldn't be ceremonially unclean. And things like having an ongoing physical problem with blood meant no going to church. It also meant that anyone else who touched you would become unclean. So the woman never should have been in the crowd in the first place. The woman very likely, besides the doctors trying to help her, and did you notice in the passage how it described her suffering? It wasn't just her disease that caused her pain. It was all the remedies everybody kept trying. That's explicitly mentioned in the passage. Those of you with chronic illness will know what that's like. Everybody's got their idea of how to fix it. They're very happy to tell you, and they're very happy to receive your money. So she had this suffering of a private, painful thing that, because of these civil laws, was public. And then 12 years of trying to get help, no doubt doing all kinds of ridiculous things, none of which worked, all of which left her broke. She probably had not been touched in years and years and years and years, and she knew the law well. To touch Jesus would be to make him unclean, but that's not how things work with Jesus. You see, when the unclean touch Jesus, we don't make him unclean, he makes us clean. Her courage to speak up is remarkable. No doubt she was embarrassed, even terrified. And in so doing, though, she she laid herself down at His feet and then awaited His scolding and rebuke. She had faith in Jesus, but the trembling shows us she didn't yet fully understand His heart. You see, Jesus didn't call on her, In order to shame her, quite the opposite. She fessed up and then Jesus affirmed and clarified the nature of her faith. And it had probably been many, many years since someone talked to her the way Jesus did. He spoke with compassion. He looked her in the eyes. He knew her in a way that gave her tremendous comfort. Before Jesus had finished talking with her, something else happened. But before we get to that, friend, I just got to ask, are you suffering? Do you have a physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, financial? psychological need. Maybe one that's been there a long, long, long time. While I can't guarantee you that between now and heaven, Jesus will answer your prayer to have it gone with a yes. What I can promise you is if you take that need to Him, He will hear you. And He will give you what you need in order to get through it, or He'll remove it. That's what He does. And because the resurrection is true in the end, whatever that thing is, it will be gone. It will be gone forever. These miracle stories in the Bible, their purpose isn't to say that here in this life, everything gets fixed, but rather to say, spiritually, you can be made whole now. You can be right with God, and that guarantees in the end everything will be made right. But before Jesus had finished talking to her, people arrived from that desperate dad's house with some truly horrific news. It's found there in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, what's the assumption behind that verse? The assumption is you you could do something to help while she was sick, but you can't do anything to help since she died. There is a certain finality to death. Every few years it seems somebody comes out with a book about coming back from the dead. Save your money. I don't think they're true. These people assumed because Jesus didn't make it in time because the ambulance got stuck in traffic. Save the gas at 4.50 a gallon. Let's see what Jesus would we do in response. Verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe. So simple. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is dead, is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. There's a lot here. We can't really go into it in great detail, but a couple things. So the scene is, every culture deals with death in different ways. In, in America today, largely, we sort of pretend it doesn't happen. We bite our lips and don't talk about it. And certainly, it's not okay to cry about it. And we stuff old people in homes so we don't have to deal with them. And we just sort of pretend it's not a real thing. In this culture, you did the exact opposite. So someone died. They didn't die in some sanitary place with people whose job was to usher people into the afterlife in as little pain as possible. Now, they had no medicine in the sense of modern medicine. And so, once somebody died, they stayed right there in the house. They laid in their bed. And then the mourning would begin. And instead of stuffing the emotion, the way you showed respect... And appropriate grief was to let it all out, to weep and wail. And that would go on from the moment of death until the moment of burial. And so important was this weeping and wailing. There was actually a profession of weeping and wailing. You would hire wailers to come and weep. Because your tears would dry out. Jesus went into that setting, and Jesus' response was, She's just sleeping. And notice the change in emotion. They go from this extreme mourning to mocking laughter. It's what the world thinks of Jesus, always has. That what he says is ridiculous but Jesus was not uh, deterred. He said the child wasn't dead but asleep. Now, this is tongue-in-cheek. In in the Scriptures, very often, to be asleep is, is a euphemism for death. But the point is, to Jesus, waking someone from death is like waking someone from a nap. It's not a big deal. Let's see what happened. Second half of verse 40. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her in Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl. Again, what a precious greeting. Little girl. I say to you, arise. Now there's a good word for Easter. Arise. Jesus has power over that which is the ultimate finality in this life. He merely says, arise and she wakes up. Verse 42. Immediately the little girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they immediately overcame over they were immediately overcome with amazement he strictly charged them that no one should know this and then told them to give her something to eat. Now this is astonishing. It's also a rather hilarious paragraph. I mean, there's so many unnecessary of ridiculous detail here. Who cares how old she is? Who cares that she's walking around? And most of all, who cares that she got something to eat? Why are those details there? They're there to help us see this is real, this actually happened, this is historically significant. These are the details that if you're making this stuff up, you don't think to include. They demonstrate the historicity of the event because they add no substantial detail or, or, or additional fact. They're narrative details giving us the real picture because it's a real event. This passage is remarkable not only for its portrayal of the power of Jesus, but for how it reveals his astonishing compassion, and his compassion is really what I hope you leave today having fresh in your mind. Jesus took that dead girl's hand in His, cold, lifeless, and He said, little child. She made no contribution to the resolution of her problem. She was dead. She brought nothing to the table. Jesus brought everything. So it is with anyone for whom God has done anything. His power was unparalleled, yet he's also astonishingly compassionate. Jesus notices the individual and ministers to the individual individually. It's become sort of cliche, but Christians say that you can have a personal relationship with God. That should not go in one ear and out the other. No, Jesus takes the hand, metaphorically speaking, of each one who comes to follow him. It is a personal relationship with God. Now just think about that. That that's possible. Beware of any religious leader who's only interested in the crowds. Jesus amassed great crowds, yet he was never too busy or unaware of the need of the individual. We live in what uh, has been called an age of outrage. Whoever yells the loudest and gathers the biggest crowd of yellers wins. And it's sort of easy to imagine that God's like that. God is quick to anger and slow to speak. If that's the way you feel about God, then I want to encourage you to consider the stories we've looked at today. Jesus is not at all that. Now quickly, would you consider one more thing with me before we read some more scripture and and end it with a couple of songs notice how mark frames this entire story it's written in a rather odd way and it's not the only time he does this if uh, you don't have a church and you live here i want to invite you to come back and what you saw today is just what we always do we sing together we pray we open the scriptures right now we're working through this book the book of mark it's a biography of sorts about Jesus. And for the rest of this year, every Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be learning more each week about Him. But several times in Mark, he writes stories like this. There's, a, there's, there's what seems like two separate stories that are mashed together. Do you see that? There's this desperate dad, and Mark could have chosen to simply tell us the rest of the story about that situation. And yet, He interrupts it in order to tell us about this silent sufferer. And then He comes back at the end again to the desperate dad. Why? Why is it written like that? This may surprise you, but the Bible uses literary techniques. God has chosen to communicate in a way we understand, and we've got to slow down and really contemplate what's there. The literary technique we're going to talk about for a minute, I would just call sandwich. Now, there's a technical name for it, and that's not it. But you're right now beginning to salivate because you're thinking about your favorite sandwich. What's a sandwich consist of? Well, most basically, there's a top bun and a bottom bun, and then there's what the two vegetarians in the room are horrified over. Big slab of meat. Now, what's the point of the sandwich? The big slab of meat, right? The buns are rather ancillary, they're to hold the good stuff together. Guess what? This literary device uses the same thing. This is written in such a way to put right at the center the best stuff the woman. affirmation of her faith, the credibility given to her, the peace announced to her. How? How does it do that? Well, it does that by causing us to compare the two events and the two people. Think with me first about Jairus. Jairus would have been a man very likely to be in power, and to have wealth, which meant then the same thing it means now, better access to resources and help. And so, do you notice how he just boldly goes up to Jesus face to face and declares his need? Now consider her. We don't even know her name. And she sneaks in silently behind him, knowing people like me don't get help from people like him. And yet, God works so different than us. She had an embarrassing problem. Every relationship she had was probably ruined. She'd tried everything, she was broke, and every day she still suffered. That Jesus would make Jairus wait so that he could stop and minister to an unnamed, unclean woman is completely, culturally unimaginable in this day. Friend, whoever you are and whatever you've done, Jesus is ready to stop and to help you in your brokenness, to minister to your need. By virtue of His death on the cross and resurrection, He's a sufficient Savior, able to help you with your greatest and most pressing need, to be made right with Him. Do you see the words He used when He talked to her? Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The peace that she received is the peace of right relationship with God, and that peace, although her health would get bad again, that peace would never go away. The miracle is designed to point us to that ultimate truth that Jesus is who He says He is, and He is a sufficient Savior. So it's the unnamed woman that Jesus commends, it's her faith that's explicitly mentioned it's the outcast that Jesus emphasizes. Not only are these people on two very different social scales, they're also different in the extent of their faith. And the story is written in such a way to tell us that. Jarius believed that Jesus could do something But that's all that we're really told. And yet, this woman receives commendation, and her faith is explicitly mentioned. What's the point? Jesus is gentle and lowly, and he is particularly drawn to those who know they have nowhere else to go. To those who society has deemed broken, unclean, beyond hope, not worthy of help, to be cast aside, unnamed, to be shooed into the corners in the dark where we won't have to deal with them. That's who Jesus is drawn to. This church is the character and the power of the Jesus we celebrate today. May I have your backstage pass, please? This is why the resurrection is so significant, because the one who died and rose again is the one who continues to minister to people's needs and is showing by His resurrection that He is a disease-departing, death-defying Savior. And His invitation today is, won't you come to me? For I am ready to say to you, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Pray with me. God, we come to you today with a whole variety of needs and our people not, a, not in distance from difficulty. Would you please use your word now to do what only you can do, that is awaken people to their need for you. I pray right now that people who are not at peace with You, would be turning to You and asking for Your mercy, confessing belief in Your death and resurrection, trust in You as the only sufficient Savior, crying out in their need, and that You would save. Thank You that You are attentive, that You are not quick to anger and slow to hear. I pray for others who at one point would say they knew You and trusted You and believed, but. For whatever reason, and there are many of them, they have wandered away, here today really only to placate a friend or a family member, or just out of tradition. But yet, an an active relationship with you is something that's a, a vague, distant memory. Lord, may they hear your tender word, daughter, son. and may they return. And may all of us in fresh, new, vibrant ways experience the risen Christ and anticipate your return as the day will mark the end of all difficulties forever. We pray this in Jesus' name.